Guys, I've shared this with you many times before, but I absolutely love cheeseburgers. Like, I'm on, a, I'm on a hunt. I'm on a relentless pursuit to find the best burger in Florida. I got, I got my, my partner, Ty, back there, my good friend. We actually want to start a burger blog. Uh, and there's this one place uh, of this burger that I absolutely love. It's in Coral Gables, Florida. It's called Swine. And they've got this burger called the Swine Burger. And it is the most incredible. It's a double, it's a double cheeseburger. Um, it's got kind of thin patties, but they're just, there's so much flavor. It's a mixture of like pork shoulder, uh, brisket. Uh, I'm blanking on the third one, but there's, there's a couple different meats in it. And it's all, it's all brought together. And they got this awesome just uh, cheese on top of it. And they've got these thick slices of bacon. Like when I say thick, like they're like this. I'm not exaggerating. Darren's had it before. It is thick bacon. And they've got this barbecue sauce that is just, it's the greatest barbecue sauce I have ever had. And no matter how much I talk about this burger, though, um, you, guys, you guys won't fully be able to grasp uh, the beauty uh, that is the swine burger. There's another thing that I absolutely love. It's fried Reese's peanut butter cups. Now, if you've never had those, guys, I'm telling you, like, you're going to sing that the taste of eternity is there on your lips. It is like they, they literally take a peanut butter cup. They put it like in the breading, they stick it into a place, and they fry it. And then they put the powdered sugar on it. You bite into it, the chocolate is melted. Like it's, it's melted. The peanut butter is still pretty firm though. So you bite into this, and the first time I ate one of them, I cried. I'm not even joking. Like the, the greatest thing that I've ever eaten. But I can sit and sit and here and try to describe it to you, and you guys aren't going to understand how good it is. Take Disney World, for example. A lot of you have probably been, but imagine you've never been to Disney World. Guys, you have no idea how amazing it is. You get on the monorail, it's like, please stand clear of the doors. Por favor, manténganse out of those puertas, right? For the comfort of others, no smoking, please. You, you get off the monorail, you walk through the gates. It's like there's a train there, and it's so cool, and there's these people with Mickey hands on. Like, this actually sounds kind of creepy. And they're waving at you with their little mouse hands, and, and you get there, and there's actually like a life-size Mickey and a, and a life-size Elsa and Anna and Belle, and there's all these Disney characters that are there. But then there's these rides, and you hop in the rides. There's this one called Space Mountain. You go in like a mini rocket ship. It's a roller coaster in the dark. Uh, there's this one that's called Peter Pan's Flight. You hop in like a pirate ship and you kind of fly through the story of Peter Pan. And it sounds cool. But until like you guys actually experience it, you're not going to fully grasp how amazing Disney World is. I could describe it and describe it and describe it. But until you get to experience it, you won't understand how good it is. Same for the burger, same for the peanut butter cup. And in um, our teaching tonight, we're going to see that the reality of heaven is even greater than the description we have of it. The, the throne room in heaven, the, the, the place where we're going to spend eternity, we're going to have a description here, but it is far better, far greater than anything we could describe. I can tell you guys about this swine burger, but you're not going to get how good it is until you've eaten it. You're not going to get how good fried peanut butter cups are until you've eaten it. You're not going to get how amazing Disney is until you've been there. I can sit and describe heaven, describe heaven, describe the throne room, but it's better than that. And, and we won't understand it until that day that we actually experience it. 
And I know for some of us, it's like, hey, I wish I knew more. Like, I wish we knew more about it. I wish God gave us an even better picture of this. I wish we could understand this even more. But we need to be content knowing God gave us what we know about heaven, and that's all we need to know. There is a certain mystery. There is some uncertainty. There is some things that we don't fully know about heaven. But that's the way God wants it. And we have to be content knowing this is what he wants us to know. So if you will, read with me. It's Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must must take place after this. So we see that John, he's the author of this book. He's the one having this vision. He's the one getting to see these things He is called up into heaven. And it says there's a loud voice like a trumpet. I picture it being, can we get this this mic on, Silas, number number two? So this voice calls him, and it's like, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Like, there's this, Darren would probably have a better voice than me, but are we good here? All right, he would probably have a better voice, but there's this loud voice. There's this voice like a trumpet. And a trumpet, if you guys don't know, is one of those things that would gather an army together for battle. It's this loud thing. It's this extreme thing. So John hears this loud voice. And John's going to get a glimpse of heaven. He's going to get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. That's the title of our teaching. But this trumpet is going to call him. And John's going to see that after this, this whole series thing, this whole that we've been talking about, this relentless pursuit, he's going to see where this pursuit brings us. He's going to see where it ends for us. He's going to see where Christians who relentlessly pursue Christ end up. And he gets called up into heaven. Some people say this is like a picture of the rapture that we read about in 2 Thessalonians, this, this picture of the people getting called up. This picture of the people being brought up into heaven, lifted up into heaven. And some people say that this is symbolic of that, and this is a picture of that. But then verse 2 happens. It says, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So the first thing that John sees once he's in heaven is what? Anybody? It's not a trick question. First thing he sees. I'm going to read this to you again. Ready? Ready? Behold, a throne. Right? What's the first thing he sees? A throne. The first thing he sees. And we're going to see this is the focal point here. That indeed there's a throne that everything that we're going to read about is set around this throne. But he doesn't just see a throne. What does he say he sees? He sees, I see a throne set in heaven and... Anybody reading? One sat on the throne. So he sees that the throne is occupied. He sees that there's a ruler on the throne. He sees that there's a king on the throne. And we have to understand this, guys. There is an occupied throne in heaven. That one is on the throne, that God, that the Father, that he is sitting on his throne in heaven. That he is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. That, that he is in control, that he sets the rules, that he does all these things, that his throne is occupied. There's not an empty throne up there waiting for someone to take it. But in heaven, God is there and he's on his throne. 
And he's in control. So in the craziness of life, in the chaos of life, we have to understand that our God is on his throne in heaven. But then this happens, verse 3. We start to get a description of who this is on the throne. It says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now you notice when they describe this, it doesn't describe a distinct figure. Doesn't say there was a six foot two man, blonde hair, green eyes, wearing a duck hunt shirt. Like it doesn't describe the beautiful figure that you see sitting on the throne. I'm six one, guys. I wasn't describing myself. So I was I didn't even do that part intentionally. It doesn't describe this the, the distinct figure. It doesn't describe God, but it describes the surrounding glory. It says he sat there as like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. It's describing this light that surrounds the throne. This jasper is probably a white light. It's like a diamond. Some people say it's actually symbolic of the empty tomb. It's symbolic of us being cleansed, of us being pure, of Christ conquering death. And then this sardius stone is symbolic. It's red. There's this white light emanating. There's this red light around the throne. And this red light is what? Someone guess. What's it symbolic of? Yeah. The blood of Jesus, right? Shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So it describes this light. And then it also says that there's something around the throne. And it's this. If we can go to that picture that we have, that one, that one picture. There you go. And I know the first thing, when you guys see this, the first thing that comes to your mind is, hey, that's God's covenant with Noah to never flood the earth again, right? Yes. That was the first thing that you guys thought, right? It says that there is a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And guys, you know what's really cool about me is a rainbow we do know. It's in the story of Noah, after the floods come, after it's rained, after the earth's been flooded 40 days and 40 nights, God sends this rainbow. God sends this covenant to Noah, this promise that I will never flood the earth again. And I think that what's really cool is in the glitz, in the glamour, you've got this throne, you've got this white, this red light, like there's glory surrounding God, all this. There's a reminder of his promise to us. There's a reminder that, hey, listen, even though this is so amazing, even though this is so cool, look how powerful I am. I'm a king. I'm on my throne. It's also, but I'm a keeper of my promises, you see, a, a throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. But you guys agree with that? God could do whatever he wants, right? He's in charge, right? We're, we're in agreement. But a promise says, or a covenant says, I will do what I said, and I can't do otherwise. God, God literally limits himself by making a promise. Because if he breaks the promise, he's not perfect anymore. He's a liar. So when we get to heaven, he puts this rainbow there as a reminder that he keeps his promises, that he makes these promises. And he, takes, he, he uses this symbol that the world has taken and making a, a, a dirty thing, that people have taken and made it represent something else. And he says, no, 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 I'm a keeper of my promises, and I'm going to redeem even the things that the world have, has trashed, even the things the world has corrupted. I am a keeper of my promises. I'm a God of redemption. And I'm going to make all things new, and I'm going to redeem all things. And this is the sign of my promise. This is the sign of that covenant I made with you. 
And it continues, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, some people will say, hey, are these elders, are they angels? Are they people? What are they? Uh, Most scholars would agree that these are people because they're going to talk about God's redemption and angels haven't had to been redeemed because angels, Jesus didn't come and die for angels, right? So, but we're going to sing about how God has died for us, how Jesus died for us. So a lot of people would say these elders uh, are people and they wear white robes and they have crowns. Now, when you look throughout scripture, you'll see that sometimes angels are described as having white robes too, but they're never described as having crowns. So that's another reason why we think these elders are actually people. And you can read about these crowns, and you guys can throw these references up on the screen in 1 Corinthians 9.25, in 2 Timothy 4.8, and in 1 Peter 5.4. But literally what we're seeing here now is God is on his throne, and now there's 24 other thrones there in the throne room. And there's people sitting on the thrones. That sounds a little weird, right? Like you don't walk into like a lot of castles and see 24 other people on thrones around the king, right? Like the king's got his throne and maybe the queen's on a throne next to him, a smaller throne, not as cool. It's a little less less cushiony, right? You know, the king's the ruler, the king's on his throne, but you've got these people around him. You've got these 24 elders around him on a throne with God, with Jesus. You see these redeemed and glorified men sitting there. But Romans 8, 17 says we're going to be joint heirs with Christ, that we get to reign with Christ, that we get to reign forever with Christ, that we do have this opportunity. But then verse 5, it says, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, these seven spirits, this is, this is the Holy Spirit right here. And we're getting this description. And they describe him as these, um, as these seven lamps. In the same way, he's been described as a dove. He's been described as fire. Now, there's this description, this visual of the Holy Spirit, that's seven lamps. And there's a verse, though, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And when we talk about the seven spirits, we see them in this verse. First, you've got literally the spirit of the Lord. You've got the spirit of God. You've got the spirit of wisdom. You've got the spirit of understanding. You've got the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. You've got these seven spirits here. And they're all a part of who the Holy Spirit is. So, so we've seen God in heaven on his throne. We've seen the Holy Spirit in heaven. And we've also seen, it's verse 8. Sorry, verse, verse, uh, verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So now we see this, this sea of glass like crystal before the throne. Now, this is a, a pretty picture. Have you guys seen that, like, memorial pond, like, in front of the Washington Monument, and it's, like, still water. It's this cool thing. So you've got this, this sea of glass. Now, some people say, hey, this is actually water. Some people say this is actually glass. We don't know. 
It could be symbolic. It could not be. We don't 100% know, but we do know it's described as the finest glass. It's described as crystal, a sea of crystal. And this is cool because this is representative of this thing called the laver that was in the tabernacle. And this is a place between the altar and the holy place where the high priest would wash his hands and wash his feet before entering into the presence of God. And this is symbolic of that. And this is a reminder to us that we need to be cleansed before approaching God. And for us that are in heaven at this time now, it's this reminder that we were cleansed that we were cleansed, that the blood was shed for us, that we've been washed before we got to approach God. And this is where it gets interesting. We said there was four creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. Now, verse seven, it says, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These are interesting-looking creatures, right? Or there's one that's got the face of a man, one the face of a lion, one the face of a calf or an ox, and one the face of an eagle. And it says that they've got, they're full of eyes, that they have six wings. Like, this thing sounds kind of creepy. Have you guys ever heard of the cherubim? The cherubim, the thing that, that was surrounding the... the the ark, the thing that was surrounding the tabernacle, these things. This is what they're talking about here. We actually read in Ezekiel 28, 14 that Satan was one of them at one point. That Satan was a cherub at one point. And they're filled with eyes. And they have four faces. Now some people will sit and, and debate about what these faces mean. And there's a lot of theories. We don't know. We don't know for sure. Like I said, God gives us what we uh, need to know. We don't necessarily have everything here that we want to know. But there are a couple of theories of what these faces mean. I just want to share a couple with you. One, uh, one of these theories is that it, it could just be who Jesus is in each of the gospel. The aspect of Jesus they look at in each gospel. You guys can see it on the big screen. But in the book of Matthew, he's, he's really described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's who we see throughout the book of Matthew. In Mark, uh, we see the calf or the ox, and, and he's really this humble servant and this worker. We see Jesus' service. We see him working. We see him doing these things. In Luke, he, he's really just, he's the perfect man. And there's this focus on his perfection, the face of a man, right? And in John, eagle, we, we read right away, hey, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The, uh, the word was God. Hey, the word became flesh. The word came down from heaven. So we see him as this eagle, Another um, theory on what these mean is that it describes all of living creation, all of animate creation, that the lion is the mightiest of all the wild animals, the ox or the calf, the strongest of domesticated animals, the eagle is the king of all birds, and the man is the highest of all creation. I don't know the real answer, guys. I know all these theories, but I do know that God has a reason. I know he has a, he has a plan but I don't think our focus should be on what they look like or why they look like that, but our focus should be on what they're saying. They say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, in Hebrew, double repetition, a lot like today, would add emphasis. Don't know if you guys ever watched the show Drake and Josh. Anybody watch Drake and Josh? 
So Josh was always like, I like to add words for emphasis. Emphasis! You guys know what I'm talking about? Who's, who's seen? This is when, Josh, when Drake, or Josh, Josh, right? When Josh was still fat before he like got skinny and started becoming like a movie star, right? He was a big boy. I had words for emphasis. Emphasis! So it would be the holy, holy. That would be what you do in Hebrew to add emphasis. But this is repeated three times. This is like a Christmas story. Have you guys ever seen that movie? Hey, put your, put your tongue on the pole. Uh-uh. I double dog dare you. Uh-uh. I triple dog dare you. Right? It's like in slow motion. It's this horrible thing. And when you get triple dog dared, you have to do it. Like, no, it's, guys, it's the rules. You have to. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't have to. Don't go, don't go triple dog daring people and get mad they don't do it. But it's like, it's this, oh no, the triple dog dare, he said it three times. And here it's this, it's, it's not just this repetition of he's holy, holy. <laughs> that was my voice cracked. <laughs> Going through puberty still, right? You guys will understand that. But it's said three times. It's said three times. There's that extra emphasis. It's not only that emphasis, but it's saying I'm emphasizing and I'm confirming. God is holy holy, holy. And I think we neglect how powerful holy is. Is there anyone here who's a country music fan? Just curious. There's this song out right now. It, it goes like, you're holy, holy. I'm high on loving you. Hi. And they take this word that's used to describe God and they describe their, their feelings for a, a relationship for, for another woman. It, it, it's what our world does is they take these things. We talked about the rainbow earlier. We take the word holy and we ruin the significance of it. But God is holy, holy, holy. And it's something we're going to have the opportunity to sing in heaven. It's going to be something we have the opportunity to shout out in heaven. And they say, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when they call him Lord God Almighty, Almighty it literally means the one who has his hand on everything. God has his, yeah, he's on his throne, but he's got his hand on everything. He's in control. Yes, we have free will. We can do what we want, but he's in control. He is our creator. He is all powerful. And we see the response here, verse 9. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So what's so cool is, is the elders see the cherubim, they see these four creatures bow down before God. They see these four creatures worship God. So they follow their example. So they follow suit. So they did what they saw. They, they responded to their response. And I want you to think of this, guys. Knowing angels should worship God should prompt our worship. Think about this. If we know that angels worship God and we know that angels should worship God, shouldn't that prompt us to worship? Shouldn't that lead us to worship? Shouldn't we understand if these angelic beings worship God? We more should worship God. You guys have been talking the whole night. I'm at, hey, can you, can you come right here? Yeah, just do it. And you come, just go back a seat, back a seat. All right, I'm just going to split you guys. Yeah, the, the three of you right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you come right here. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
No, no, no. The, the other guy I'm pointing to. I'm pointing to you. Yes. All right. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate it. Not that confusing. All right. Do we have any less reason to praise God or to thank God? We have more reason to praise God than the angels, right? We have more reason to thank God. There's this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to this. You can see it on the screen. It says, do we sing as much as the birds do? Yet what have the birds to sing about compared with us? Do we sing as much as the angels do? Yet they were never redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because you got the birds going around, rock and robin, tweet, 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 rock and robin, tweet, tweet, right? You guys know some old school music. The birds are singing all the time. The birds don't have a reason to sing. They just make noises because it's what they do. It's like middle school boys fart because it's what they do. Like, they don't have a reason. It's true, right? The angels, they sing because they were created by God. But they weren't redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have such a more reason to sing, such a more reason to worship, to follow this example. And the word worship literally just means to credit worth or worthiness. It's more than anything, more than just submitting ourselves, more than, than singing. It's just saying, hey, God, you're worthy. God, you're, I'm nothing without you. I, I'm worth nothing without you. This is to your credit. This is to your glory. And it says that they come, that they fall down, they worship him, and they cast their crowns before the throne. And this, back in the day, the emperor of Rome, what would happen is he had kings under him. And every once in a while, they would all get together, and these kings would set their crowns at the feet of the emperor. And he would give them back their crowns. And all it was was demonstrating that their right to rule, that their victory, that their power, it came from the emperor. So we have this opportunity to, to worship God, to lay our crowns at his feet because we will get this crown of victory. When we have this opportunity to do it, all we're doing is saying, hey, the only reason I have this victory is because of you. The only reason I have this crown is because of you. I'm giving you back what is yours. And, and I love what happens because it says, it says that they cast their crowns, that the 24 elders that all 24 of them fall down and they all cast their crowns. There's no division. There's no divided people. There's no divided opinions. They're all in one accord. They're not sitting there like, oh, I mean, of course Johnny's gonna throw his crown. His isn't as good as mine. Or why does he have a better crown than me? Oh, he didn't throw his far. There's not this division in heaven. And I think... Yes, the throne, yes, being the presence of God, but I think one of the greatest parts of heaven is there's unity, that there's not division, that there's not Republicans and Democrats, that there's not red, yellow, black, and white, that there's not, that there's not oh, you go to that school, you go to this school, oh, you like that team, oh, you like this team. We're all citizens of heaven. We're all in heaven. We're not arguing about this we're not talking about this is more important or these lives are more important or this happens or this happens. What is, is there's unity in heaven. There's no division in heaven. There's not a person that's better than someone else. There's not someone who thinks they're better than someone else. It's united. Guys, we need to get rid of everything that divides us from each other and from the Lord. 
because that's not what's in heaven. So we see these people worshiping. The King James Version actually says, for thy pleasure, they are and were created. Because we exist to give glory and pleasure to God. It's why we exist. It's why we were created. We were literally created to give him glory. We were created to please him. Think of it like this. Here's another Spurgeon quote. There is a throne in heaven that no one can occupy but you. And there's a crown in heaven that no other head can wear but yours. And there is a part in the eternal song that no voice can ever compass but yours. And there is a glory to God that would be wanting if you did not come to render it. And there is a part of infinite majesty and glory that would never be reflected unless you should be there to reflect it. How cool is that? Like literally, guys, there's a crown waiting for you. These voices crying out, the voices worshiping God, they're waiting for your voice to join theirs. There's a part in that song for you. Some of you maybe are going to be baritones. Some of you are going to, I don't know, the different voice things. Hopefully I'll be a good singer in heaven. But there's a place for you. There's a part for you. And it's because you matter. You're important. In the grand scheme of things, guys, listen, there's a crown waiting for you. There's a throne waiting for you. There's a part in a song waiting for you. Guys, you matter. You're important. You're a part of this description. Like if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is something you have to look forward to. And I think that is a really cool, I think that's a really awesome thing, but I also think that we need to start planning and we need to start training for that day. We need to start worshiping now. We need to get rid of division now. We need to be ready for that day. Here's the thing. If there's a choir in the main sanctuary, like say there was a choir in there tonight, I'm not going to just walk in during the rehearsal and be like, hey, I'm here for the choir. You never auditioned. You never tried out. Do you even know the songs we're singing? Do you know which part we'd want you to sing? Are you going to sing the high notes or the low notes? No, you've got to train. You've got to prepare. You've got to be ready. Guys, we're going to be in this heavenly choir one day. And every opportunity we have to sing to God, every opportunity we have to worship, let's start practicing for that day. Amen? Amen. And then this happens, chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to take a look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Here's what I want you guys to see here. The emphasis here isn't on the scroll itself. It's not on the contents. Some people wonder what it says. We don't know. It's another one of those things. We don't know. There's different theories, but we don't officially 100% know what's on this scroll. But that's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on who is going to open the scroll. And John cries. He weeps. He thinks there's no one worthy enough. But then suddenly, who steps in? It says the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Isaiah 31:14 describes it like this, as a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Guys, a lion is a ferocious creature. We're not talking the cowardly lion, the Wizard of Oz, the hood roof, hood hoof, right? We're not talking the cowardly lion. That was like my Uncle Joey impression from Full House. But we're talking about this great, this mighty creature. We're talking about like Simba on Pride Rock. We're talking Mufasa, the big old lion that pins the hyenas down. Like the lion is the king, right? It's the king of the animals. It's the most ferocious of the big cats. Another verse, Hosea 11.10, describes it like this. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. You guys all, how many of you have heard a lion roar? It's an intimidating thing. Listen, if you came across a lion in the wild and it roared at you, you're running. Lions are powerful. They're big. Have you ever seen a lion paw up close? They have a huge paw. They could kill you with one swipe. The strength of their jaw could crush a skull. They are powerful animals. And God, and Jesus, sorry, is described as a lion, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then also says, says, hey, look, behold the lion. And then it says, and I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. So don't worry, the lion will open the scroll. I'd be like, yeah, bring the lion in. He'll bite open that scroll. He'll, and you look, and it's a lamb. <laughs> Mary had a little lamb, right? Like, what is going on here? Why is there a lamb? What's happening? Guys, this lamb, it's, it's sympathetic, but it's powerful. It says the lamb stood as though it had been slain. The lamb's alive, but it still has the marks of its previous sacrifice. It stood there, but it looked like it had been slain. Jesus is alive, but he still has the marks of his sacrifice. And this lamb represents humility, it's gentleness, it's this sacrificial love. But what's so cool about it, Jesus looks like he's still been slain. The lamb still looks like he's been slain because the sacrifice of Jesus is still fresh and current before God. Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, it's not this old thing. God's not like, that's so 2,000 years ago, right? It's not a fad. It's not like bell-bottom jeans. It's not like saying, uh, I don't even know, what's a word that's not cool anymore? It's not like MySpace. It's not like Facebook. It's not like Periscope. It's not one of these things that fades away. It's not one of these things that was cool at one time and is not. It's not like how we're all like, yeah, I'm a Golden State fan. Then Cleveland wins it all. We're like, oh, I'm a Golden State fan. Uh, I'm a Cleveland fan, sorry, Golden State has faded away. Guys, Jesus' sacrifice is not something that has faded away. It's current, it's not stale, it's not old. I really, I like to think of it like this more than anything. I wrote down this thought, I said Jesus died, dies, and will die for us. And, and that's not literal. I'm not saying in the future he's gonna actually die for me, but I like to think anything I've ever done, past, present, or future, is what he's died for. And it's, it's current to God. If I commit a sin 25 years from now, guess what? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross covers that sin because it's that current to God. So this lion who can open the scroll is looked at and it's this lamb who has seven horns and seven eyes. 
which is really interesting. But these seven horns, throughout the Bible, a horn is a symbol of power. And, and seven is this number of perfection. It's this number of completion. So these seven horns show the omnipotence of the lamb. He's all-powerful. And it says he has seven eyes. And eyes are symbolic of knowledge and wisdom. They see. Seven eyes. Think how much you can see. Think how much you can take in. And it's this number of perfection, this number of completion. So it's also omniscience. It's symbolic of the Lamb's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing. And he still bears the mark of the sacrifice. We're almost done. Bear with me, guys. Verse 8. It says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on in the earth. Hey, guys. It's cool. We see a harp, which this is totally just a random thought, but worship in heaven is going to have music. So what we do now is, is a preview of that. We see these harps that are brought into this worship, that there's actual music playing as this is happening. And then it says that there's these Golden bowls full of incense that are the prayers of the saints. And I think this is so cool, guys, because literally this is how valuable our prayers are to God. If you guys have ever burned incense in your house, my grandma is big on burning incense. So you walk in and it's this nice smell. It's this sweet smell. It's this good smell. So our prayers are this good, sweet smell to the Lord, this thing that you'd want to fill your house with. But not only are they this good, sweet smell, but they're so valuable, they're so precious to him that he keeps them in a golden bowl. Because I'll tell you, you don't serve Gatorade out of a golden bowl. You don't serve a cheap meal out of a golden bowl. You use the golden bowl when, like, you know, your in-laws come over one day, right? You use the golden bowl when, like, the people, your boss comes over for dinner. You use the golden bowl to impress. God keeps our prayers in a golden bowl in heaven. And it smells like sweet incense to him. And then in Revelation 4, we had this focus on, on creation. Hey, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, uh, you created all things. By your will, they exist and were created. But now we have this focus on redemption. We have this focus on redemption. You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood, by the blood of Jesus, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth." Verse 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, or 100 million, and thousands of thousands. It's this innumerable number. There's a reason it doesn't give you an exact number, because you, you can't. There's so many. Not only is it 10,000 times 10,000, but it's thousands of thousands of angels and living creatures, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Guys, the angels aren't up there offering praise for their redemption. 
They're observers of ours. The angels in heaven have this front row seat to see this amazing story of redemption, of reconciliation. And in some ways, the angels get to, get to see the, the, this fallen people, this fallen hero. In some ways, I, I think of the story of Michael Phelps. He, he was the greatest Olympic swimmer of all time. But he got into a, a point and a place in his life where he wanted to commit suicide, where he wanted to kill himself, where he said he wasn't worth anything anymore. But, but, but then what happened? Actually, someone gave him the book Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. It's a Christian book. And he read, I think it was like a chapter of the book, and it changed his life. Now, I don't know if, if Michael Phelps is a Christian. I don't know if, if, if that happened. I don't know if he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior, but something about God's word did something to him. And now he's back. If you guys have watched any of the Olympics, he's redeemed himself as an athlete, as a person. He's already won, I think, three gold medals at this Olympics, and he has an opportunity to win a few more. And it's, as humans, we love to watch that, right? We're like, yeah, go Michael Phelps. It happened long ago. I don't know if you guys remember the football player, Michael Vick. He was a good quarterback. He ran like this dog fighting ring, got into a lot of trouble, came back into the NFL a few years later, got reinstated and had like an all pro season, a pro bowl season. It was awesome. Everyone was cheering for him because we love these redemption stories. So the angels are up in heaven watching and, and they're loving this and they're worshiping God, not for redeeming them, but for redeeming us. And they're like, this is this incredible thing. This is this amazing thing. We're observing this. They get to see the greatness, the greatness of God's work. It's like when we root for these athletes, when we root for Michael Phelps, when we root for LeBron, Steph, we don't actually benefit, but they're doing something for our team. The angels aren't actually benefiting from God redeeming us, but they are all on the same team. And he's doing a great work that they, get to root, that they get to root on, that they get to cheer for, that they're worthy as the lamb who was slain to receive power. He wasn't slain for them, but they got to witness this greatness. And that's why they're praising him. That's why they worship him. And we're going to close here, verse 13. Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Guys, God reigns eternally. God's in heaven. We have this hope of heaven by the blood of Christ. If we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we get to experience this. But it says very specifically, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, that every single creature will one day worship him, that, that one day every tongue will confess he's God, that one day everyone will know this. And if you're a Christian, this is where your eternity is. It's in heaven. But we have to start this now. We have to start preparing now. We have to start practicing now. So we're going to close, guys. I'm going to pray, but we have an opportunity to, to worship our God. We have a, an opportunity to truly have a glimpse of heaven, to have a taste of eternity. I know you guys love that song. We sing it. It's literally, hey, we're singing this song because this is a taste of what heaven's going to be like. But we have this opportunity to lift our voices to him, to sing to him, to praise him, to have a preview of heaven. I know a lot of people get excited like, oh, hey, there's a new preview out for Rogue One, Star Wars. There's a new preview out for this movie. I want to see that preview. Guys, we should get even more excited about a preview we get of our eternity with God. Amen?